Hi everyone, welcome to Into the Archives. While our main sermon podcast, uh, Words from the Wildwood, can be found on Sunday mornings, this is more of a retrospective, a looking back at where I have been, where I preached, what I've had the opportunity to do, and the observations I've made along the way. I hope that you can look back with me at many of these sermons that have come. Some may sound a little dated, but you might be impressed to hear things that were going on then that are still going on today. I hope you enjoy this offering from the archives. All right, guys, tonight we're going to wrap it up. We're going to finish up our series on spiritual warfare. We've only gone seven or eight weeks, but I think it's been a good seven or eight weeks. I want to ask you a question. How many of you can swim? (laughs) Swim in a lake or a pool. Here's the thing. When you were very, very young and you first had a swimming lesson, when you had your very first swimming lesson, how many of you would go out, hop on a ship, travel to England, and swim the English Channel having taken one lesson? They have sharks? <laughs> yes, they have sharks. How many of you would swim the English Channel after one swimming lesson? None of us are that stupid. But I want to ask you a question. How many of us live every day of our lives attempting to be successful in the Christian life, having only learned, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so? How many of us are relying on things we learned when we were seven or eight or nine to get us through all the complex struggles of the Christian life? Tonight, I want to talk about swimming lessons. Because I was talking to my daughter about taking lessons last summer and how much she loved it. But over the last year, she's done absolutely nothing with her swimming lessons. She hasn't gone and gotten a pool. She hasn't done laps. She hasn't worked on her freestyle or her breaststroke or even her dog paddle. She really hasn't done anything with it. So we went down to Oregon and got in the water and it was like she had never been in the water before. She had to relearn it all over again because she hadn't done anything with what she took last summer. Spiritual warfare is a lot like that. I want to address three traps, three traps in spiritual warfare. If you can avoid these three traps, you are well on your way to a successful Christian life. Okay, first one is in Proverbs 1, 5 through 8. The very first trap that you have to avoid is spiritual arrogance. Because you see, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing, amen? A little bit of knowledge puffs us up. Just a little bit of knowledge makes us think we know enough to go the distance, but a little bit of knowledge is never enough. Amen? This is what it says. Proverbs 1, 5 through 8. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the ones who understand obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Profound, profound words in the book of Proverbs. Incredible words, simple words, but to avoid that trap of spiritual arrogance, the very trap that ensnares most Christians, you have to pay attention to these words. Let's take a look at it. First, verse 5. Proverbs 1.5 says this, Even the wise must learn. Let the wise hear, and what? Increase in learning. Now, if you are wise, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a home cell leader, if you're a deacon, if you're a 50-year-old adult Christian, and you've been serving Jesus for 30 or 35 years, 
Do you really think you need to learn something? Absolutely you do, because you cannot know all of the wonderful counsel of God in this life. No matter how old you are, how long you've been a Christian, you need to keep growing, because even the wisest man understands his need to continually increase his knowledge of who God is. This week in Early Bird, we've been talking about the goodness of God. When we are young Christians, we know how good God is. He saves us from our sin, he gives us hope of eternal life. But you know what happens? Over the years, if we don't pay attention to how big that grace is, how huge that mercy is, we begin to think that we own it, that we deserve it, that it's our right. No, it's not. It's a wonderful, gracious gift of God. And by coming back to the Word of God, continually seeing how unworthy we are, but how amazingly worthy He is, we every day appreciate the graceful mercy of God. Let the wise hear every day the things that Jesus teaches. You can read the same scripture once a month, every month for the rest of your life, and if you live to be a thousand, you will continue to learn from that same scripture. Because the older you get, the more you go through, the deeper the understanding of that verse becomes. Look at verse 6. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. You see, the people of those days, the people of the ancient Near East, they believed that the wise man should be able to understand these mysterious sayings that were written down in the Word of God. Do you want to know a really amazing, mysterious, uh, just completely incomprehensible saying that a non-Christian will never get? You want to hear it? I'll give you this deep, profound saying. In the beginning, God. That is the simplest statement, the first statement in the Word of God, and the non-Christian never gets it. They don't get it. At the very beginning of all things, God was. God acted. God decided. God chose. It's all about Him. And many people today who profess to be wise, who put letters of academia behind their name, who stack up degrees, who write books, they don't get it. It's still about God, no matter how smart, how many degrees, how intelligent you think you are. It still goes back to Him. The wisest man knows he's nothing, that only God is something. Verse 7, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. Only a fool would despise wisdom and instruction. How many people do you know who are Christians, they are Christians, they are saved, they say, I don't need to go to church. I know all of that stuff already. Everything I need to know about Jesus, I learned when I was two, three, four, five, or six. I've been saved since I was seven years old. The pastor can't tell me anything I don't already know. That's the first true statement they've made. The pastor can't tell you something you don't already know. But God can teach you a lot that you don't understand through his word. The respect of God. That's where wisdom begins. It's not the whole thing. It's not the totality. Fearing and respecting God is not enough. How many people that we know in our families, our family members, say, I love God. Well, good. I'm glad you love God. Now, what do you do about that? They go, I don't understand. Okay, you love God, so what? What does the love of God do? Where does the love of God take you? How does the love of God move you? You see, they think that the fear of the Lord is the totality. As long as I love God, I'm okay, I'm going to go to heaven. 
That's not what the Bible says. It says the fear of the Lord, the respectful admiration of Yahweh is where it begins. That's where we all came into the Christian faith. The fear of a holy God, a God we had offended, a God we had not loved and respected as we should. That's where we began. And then we began to learn about grace and mercy and justice and his abundant giving. And we went beyond the fear of the Lord to the adoration of the Lord, to the admonition of the Lord, to the praise of the Lord, to living only for him because he was the only thing we're living for. It starts in fear. Just like when your child is real little. Remember when your kids were little? And they would say, wait till your father gets home. Ooh, that was the fear of God right there. Yeah. Mama didn't have to smack you. Just wait till your father gets home. That's it, right there. You were on your knees and you were praying for Jesus to come back before your dad got home. Because my dad was 450 pounds. His belt was that big, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so when dad had to lay down the leather, you felt it. <laughs> Anyways, I'm glad he did that, though. Kept me out of jail for a lot of years. <laughs> Anyways. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. If you think that all you have to know is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, you fall short of salvation. That's not salvation. Look at verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Sometimes we get into this advanced theology. We start debating, is Jesus going to come back before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation? Is heaven going to be on earth? Is it going to be in the sky? Is it going to be another dimension? You know, all that stuff is wonderful, but it takes you away from the basic foundation of all things. The basic foundation of all things is don't forget what your mama and daddy taught you, what you learned in Sunday school. Because if you come back to that foundation, you will know that you are still a learner, that you're still a student, you're still a child, and you still have a lot to learn about who God is. Amen? Amen. The first trap is spiritual arrogance, but that's not the only trap in the spiritual world. Look at our second trap tonight. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 is the second trap I want you to look at as we wrap up this series on spiritual warfare. And that is this, the danger of spiritual selfishness. You see, you must trust the giver, never trust the gift. You understand what I'm saying? Trust the giver, never trust the gift. Many churches in our nation today, in many denominations, like to say that the presence of spiritual gifts, as found in various places through the New Testament, that's the evidence of salvation. Does the Bible say that speaking in tongues is evidence of salvation? No, it doesn't. Does it say that being able to heal is proof of salvation? No, it doesn't. Does it say that being a great preacher is evidence of salvation? No, it doesn't. What is the evidence of salvation? Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is the evidence of salvation. Yet there are churches that I know who are pastored by men that I know that I love as brothers in Christ who say, if you don't speak in tongues, sister, you ain't saved. Or brother, if you can't interpret dreams, you don't have the fullness of salvation. Or if you don't have the ability to shut the halabana, figure out the Bible just by raising up your hands, then you just don't have the gift of God. And you know what? It's a lie. It's a lie. And that's a lie. 
because the Word of God never says any of that means anything. We have people in the church today who pray literally every day, hour after hour, year after year to receive a spiritual gift. Yet not one of them prays to have a chance to lead someone to Jesus. We have people who pray for this gift or that gift. God, I want to be an evangelist. God, I want to be a preacher. God, I want to be a deacon. God, I want to be a soldier. But they never say, God, I want to be faithful to you. I want to love you. I want to set you above all things. We seek the gift and not the giver. Here's the reason why. Because when I got the gift, brother, I can look down my long pointy nose at you and go, I got the gift that you ain't got, so you should respect me. Kiss my ring. And you think I'm joking, but y'all know every single one of you know people just like that in this church. They think that because of this gift or that gift, this title or that title, they are hot stuff. You know the problem with that? When you think you're something, it usually means that you're what? Deceived, that you're nothing. The people who think they're something miss the point of going back to the very first lesson, which is what? Hmm, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Spiritual arrogance will kill you. Same thing is true of spiritual selfishness. Take a look at it. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, it says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, that I do not have love, I have gained nothing. Everybody who thirsts after spiritual gifts hates these verses. Because this says your thirsting after gifts is wrong. It is absolutely wrong. It is putting the cart before the horse. It is putting the gift before the giver. Take a look at verse 1. The gift is not everything. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. By the way, little theological note here. There ain't no such animal as the tongues of angels. You want me to repeat that for you? No such thing as the tongues of angels. Paul is not making a theological statement that he is able to converse in the language of angels. That is not what he is saying. This structure in the Greek language simply is used as an illustration. If I could speak in every tongue known by man, Paul never claimed to do that, by the way. And if I could speak even in the language of the angels, if such things existed, but I did not have love in my heart for my fellow man, which moved me to action on their behalf, then I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Gongs and cymbals are frequently used in pagan religions to summon up the gods. If you go to Taiwan or China during Ghost Month or the celebration of the Chinese deities, you will hear gongs and cymbals till you have a migraine. It makes you crazy to hear the crashing of the cymbals all day and all night, summoning up the gods. There is nothing here that says you can pray to God for the gift of tongues or angels. The word tongues in the, in the Bible is the word glossolalia. Glossolalia means a tongue spoken by men, a known earthly language. When you see the gift of tongues in the Bible, it is the gift of one person, given the ability by God to go into a country or stand before a people whose language you do not speak, and God gives you the ability to speak in their language. I know what you're going to say. Well, wait on, Pastor. 
What about where it says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in groanings too deep? Yeah, that's right. Groanings too deep to what? Utter. When the Holy Spirit intercedes and speaks, it don't come out your pie hole. It does not come out of your mouth. It comes out of your soul. That's why it's too deep to utter. You don't make any sounds. You see, this gift has been elevated in the modern church to a ridiculous level. Paul ranks it as among the least important of the gifts because it only succeeds in building up the one who speaks, not the one who receives. Unless, of course, you're speaking in an assembly where there's someone of a foreign country and you speak a language that they can understand and somebody stands up and interprets for everybody else. If somebody speaks in tongues and there is no interpretation, it is not of God. Let me dig my grave a little deeper. When you speak in the presence of people in tongues and there's no interpretation, shut up. Because it ain't of God. Because the word of God forbids it. If you doubt me, look it up. Paul never allows the speaking of other languages unless there's interpretation. You know why that is? It prevents the person who speaks from being puffed up and becoming arrogant. That's why you have to limit it. Because we human beings love to exalt the gift that we've got. That's why the singer loves to build up singing and the preacher loves to build up preaching when they're all exactly the same. They're the same gift for the same purpose to build up the church. That's what our, our membership class 201 is about. It's about understanding that spiritual gifts are for the sake of others. And they're all equal because they're all used by God to build up the church. And some of you are angry right now, and that's okay. Look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have the love of my fellow man that compels me to share Christ with them, I am a zero. You can speak all day long prophetic mysteries. You can do all that stuff. You can, you can show great, amazing powers, casting out demons and, and doing all that other stuff. But you know what? So what? If you are not moved by the compassion, by the agape of God, you are nothing because all you're doing is building yourself up to look good in everybody else's eyes. The Pharisees did that and Jesus said, you know what? They got their reward here on earth. Everyone who does it without being seen gets their reward in heaven from God himself. See, that's why it's bad to look to the gift. I know many preachers, and this terrifies me, many preachers who trust in their ability to preach. They trust in their ability to make great sermons. And they labor hours and hours upon sermons. And they sculpt out the alliteration so that everything has a G or an S or everything has six syllables or everything has these little flows. And they are so proud of their sermons. And you know what? They're absolutely pointless. People go, bravo, good sermon. They totally forget it. You got boobs like me that roll up out of the hills and we just throw it loose. And somehow God blesses it. And it's not because we're geniuses, because what little bit of gray matter I have left between my ears that wasn't killed off in the 60s, it barely functions. So if it comes out and it makes sense, give God the glory. Don't give it to me. I don't deserve it, because I'm just as impressed that you are that it makes sense. <laughs> Seriously, I am. Okay, look at verse 3. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't do it for the love of Christ, I am nothing. There are people who are martyrs. Anyone who has been martyred in a foreign country um, who's been taken by Muslims or other, other peoples and killed, they didn't want to die. They weren't seeking death. They were seeking to glorify Christ. But there are those people who are like living martyrs. They say, look at what I'm suffering. Look at what I'm going through. Adore me. Canonize me. Give me a robe and put me up in a church somewhere. Those people are nothing because it's all about them. It's all about 
who they are and what they can do and not about who Christ is and what he deserves. And that's what happens when you forget the purpose of the gift is to bless the church, to strengthen the church, to, to, to build it up, to make it strong. And every one of us has a gift. Every one of us should be using our gifts to bless the church. If you can build a set for the Iwanas or for Harvest Night, you do that, Jeff. You go build that set. You know, and Bill, if you have the ability to come and help walk security, you do that because your gift is just as important as his. It's just as important as mine or Roger's or Mike's or anybody else's. Every gift is vital. And if we don't use it, then we're just not giving our best to the Lord and to those in this church. That's the truth of it. You never trust the gift. You only trust the giver to keep using you in his service. And that's what it's all about. Let's press on. Third trap is in James 1, 5 through 8. First thing we looked at was spiritual arrogance. Then spiritual selfishness. Desiring for me. Desiring what builds me up. Desiring what makes me important. Third trap is the worst of all. It's the most deadly in the church. And this is the one that we all have to watch out for because it'll get us when we're not looking. And that is spiritual pride. You see, when you get lost, you need to ask for and listen to directions. Now I know that some of you believe that men never ask for directions. Okay, most of the time this is true. Sometimes even a man, when he's completely lost, will go into a gas station and say, I'm sorry, I don't mean to take up your time, but can you please tell me where the heck I am and what I'm doing? Because I don't know. And I've done that a few times. I get in downtown Seattle, I'm like, how do I get out of here? And they go, you can't get out of there from here. I got lost in Seattle once. It took me forever to find out how to get back to the freeway. I just missed it. The thing is this, in our spiritual life, at some point, every one of us is going to get lost trying to find our way through this life. Something in this life will mess you up. You have to be able to ask for directions. Take a look at it. James 1, 5 through 8. Here it is. If any of you, it should be, since all of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. That's what we don't want to be. We don't want to be the double-minded person. We don't want to be unstable. And sometimes our lives feel unstable. Do you know why your life feels unstable? Because your eyes are on what's happening. Your eyes are on the people around you. Your eyes are on your situation. They're not on your rock. They're not on where your feet should be planted. If your feet are planted, then you should feel the stability of it. You can feel the instability of the situation, but you yourself are stable. Let's take a look at it. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives begrudgingly, just barely enough. God who gives only enough for today, but not enough for... No, it says who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. What is the key to receiving the wisdom of God? The humility to admit you don't know everything. As a pastor, I will tell you, I don't know everything. I can only do my best at that moment with what I have. And believe me, 
as a pastor, I'll tell you, it is critical, critical, critical to go before your father and say, I just don't know, Lord, what I should do. Lead me into your word. Show me from your scriptures how I should act and how I should behave. And the Lord will lead you to a story or a verse or a set of verses in scripture and you will go, wow, Lord, that is exactly what I need. How many times have you had a really lousy year? I mean, a year that stinks on ice. You're going, please, dear God, just come back in the rapture. Get me out of here. I can't take another year of this. And then what do you, what do you read in Scripture? You open your Bible. You get to your devotional that day. And it says, my strength is sufficient for you. And you're going, oh, thanks a lot. You know, like, I wanted you to get me out of here. I didn't want you to tell me I had to stay but the important thing is this, I will walk you through it. It's not going to be the way you want. It's not going to be the deliverance you're looking for. It's my deliverance in my time. But I won't let you go under the waves, Peter. I won't let you, I mean, let you get up to your neck. But I'm going to snatch you back out the waves. You're going to be okay, but you've got to keep your eyes on me. You've got to trust me to walk you down this path. It says God will give generously. I can think of a million times, literally a million times, when I have just been utterly at wit's end, and I will go to my daily devotional that day, which everyone I'm using, and literally every day there is something there for me about the things that I struggle with as a believer, as a husband, as a father. You know, I struggle with all of those different areas of my life, keeping them balanced, and I don't always do a good job. You know, I, I struggle with the right thing to do. You know, how, how far can you push it? Uh, sometimes I get in the pulpit and I say things, and afterwards I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was not a good thing to say. That was really bad. I should, Lord, I'm sorry about that. You know, but what's weird is every time I do that, somebody, somebody says, Pastor, why are you preaching at me? God told me to. That's why I'm preaching. <laughs> you got to have faith that the Lord put it there for a reason. Seriously, that's, that's, all, that's all we got sometimes. Look at six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. How hard is it to trust God? When you are in hard times, how hard is it to trust God? It is miserable hard. When you are a single woman waiting for a husband or a single man waiting for a wife or a concerned parent fretting and biting off your nails about that child who's going through hard times. When you are in a financial situation or a marriage situation and you just don't know how this is ever going to resolve itself, how hard is it to go when peace like a river attendeth my ways, when sorrows like sea billows roll? You know, that's hard. That is hard. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be humbling. It's supposed to break you because spiritual pride will kill your walk with Jesus. It will kill your walk with Jesus if you think you can do it. You have to know you can't do it unless God does it in you, through you, with you, around you, before you, and behind you. When all you have to cling on to is the Shekinah of God going before you as the cloud into the setting sun. Baby, wait for the flames to erupt and then you've got light to walk by. But keep following no matter what happens. Look at verse 7. But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord if we can't trust God. Who are we going to trust? Who do we put our faith in? Who do we believe if we don't believe him and his word? If his word promises it, we got to hang on to it with teeth and toenails. Don't let the word go. Don't let someone take it from you. Don't let someone intellectualize it away from you. It is all we have in this life is the word of God to cling to and to hope in. 
trust and rely upon. Number seven, for that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. If we're not trusting, you know where you're going to stay? Right in the sea up to your neck inches from drowning until you say, Lord, save me. As long as you think you can do it, God's going to let you tread water, baby. You know what happens when you tread water? You get tired. You get tired when you tread water. You ever been out in the middle of a lake and, and somebody comes by in a speedboat and dumps your aluminum boat over? Don't you hate that? I hate that. If any of you are the ones that dump it, never mind. I forgive you in Jesus' name. Just get out of my face. Anyways, um, seriously, sometimes you get dumped out of the boat and it goes like you get swamped. You gotta trade water for a while. You know what? They say that when you're a big person in the water, you get lighter. It's a lie. You get heavy. <laughs> you're swimming, and that's all you can do. Sometimes spiritually, we try to tread water for years. When the Father says, I'm right here, boy, stick out your hand. Why are you doing this the hard way? Lord, I'm too arrogant. I'm too proud. I've been a deacon. I've been a pastor. I've been a cell leader. I can do this without you, Lord. He's like, fine, go for it. He will wait till your nose goes under. He'll snatch you up by the hair. You done yet? He's going to get your attention. As long as you want to do it without him, he'll sit right there and wait for you. He won't let you die, but he'll let you uh, get awful tired. But he pulls you out of the water. We can't receive the blessing of God if we're not walking in faith to the God who called us. See what I'm saying? Look at the very last one. James 1.8. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If your walk with the Lord isn't straight, if your walk with the Lord is weak, your marriage will be weak, your parenting skills will be weak, your grandparenting skills will be weak, your work skills will be weak, your church skills will be weak. You will never have peace because you will always be treading water because you're unstable. You don't know where your foundation is. You don't know where your worth as a person is. And if you don't have that, you learn nothing. You know, I asked you before, if you took one swimming lesson, would you try to swim in this channel? No way, you would never do that. So why do we try to live on stuff we learned 30 years ago when we were at, in Awana or vacation Bible school? Why do we try to hang on to that? Why don't we get back in and keep our lessons up to date? Keep swimming, keep going. This is how we sum up the whole thing. This is the end of the whole spiritual warfare thing. A true believer will struggle in this world. Amen? Amen? If you believe in Christ, you will struggle. End of story. There's no magical deliverance. There's no uh, kumbaya, sweet bye-bye in this life. Okay, you get that when you're dead. So, remember that your greatest enemy is the two pounds of goo between your ears. This is your greatest enemy. This is what Satan will deceive. This is where he tries to build up the arrogance and the pride and all those other types of things. This is where he builds in the selfishness. This is where he deceives us as to our worth, our ability. This is where he brings up the questions of, did God really say that? Is that really what God wants for your life? There are a lot of people who look at the Bible and go, I will accept all of the Bible except for this. And when you say, I will take all the Bible except for this, you got a big problem. Because the except for this was still written by God. He expects you to accept that. So you know what? This two pounds of mush up here, that's the primary battle area in your life is your head. Third, God's word exists to guide you through the world of spiritual warfare and the Holy Spirit is the teacher. You have to trust them. The Holy Spirit's job is not to give you some unknown revelation. The Holy Spirit's job is to remind you of what Jesus said and did so that you can follow the master. That's the point of the Holy Spirit. He points to Jesus. As Christians, we point to him. 
That's our job. That's what we do. And the Holy Spirit will show us what the Word of God means. We take it. We live by it. We accept it when we don't like it, when we do like it. We learn about it. And finally this, you need to surround yourself with no men. You know what no men is? Okay, in the business world, what's the most feared and hated thing in the business world? Yes, yes men. You know why? Yes men say yes to everything. Yes men don't even listen to you and they say yes. You need no men in your life. You say, Herman, do you think I could? No. Well, that, uh, that's good. I appreciate that. Terry, do you think I can get by with? No. You need men or women around you who will say to you, no, you can't do that. That's not right. That's not appropriate. You're a believer. You need to rise above that. You need to be better than that because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Amen. Satan says, yes, yes, yes. There needs to be somebody left that says, no, 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 and I don't mean your wife. I heard that. <laughs> I hope we have had a good time in the last seven or eight weeks. I think it's been eight weeks. Going through these things on spiritual warfare. And I hope they've made sense to you because really every day is an exercise in spiritual warfare. It's how you brace your mind, how you prepare your mind, what you will and won't accept. And if you know what that is before you get out the door, the battle's half won. So let's pray and we'll get out of here. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in today to listening to our programs. We appreciate your attention. We present this for you as a way of building up God's people, giving you hope in these dark days. They are presented to you commercial free. We don't solicit money from any companies, Bible organizations, or churches. We put it out there because we believe wholeheartedly that the Word of God is the only hope this country or any country could have. Because we present it to you commercial free, we do ask you to search your heart. If you feel the need to support us in any way, it, it, could, be a, it could be a love offering, a gift, send me enough for a cup of coffee. I'd really appreciate it. You can send all support to Richard Stidham, S-T-I-D-H-A-M, Richard Stidham at Box 1321. Baytown, Texas, 77521, and everything you send to us will be used to keep this podcast on the air. Have a great day. God bless, and remember, keep looking up. Our salvation is drawing near.